We're going to be talking about waiting on God. Over the past couple of years, I have, I have just in conversations and in counseling, I have spoken with so so many Christians, uh, and and not just like new believers or or immature Christians, but people that I would consider to be solid mature Christians who are in these seasons of, of waiting on God or they're going through just, just very difficult circumstances. The refrain that I hear in these conversations is, I feel like God doesn't see me. I feel overlooked. I feel, I feel passed over. Their present circumstances are so painful that they're finding it very difficult to, to keep up hope for what God has for them. And so uh, in our passage today in Isaiah we're going to look at God's promise of hope for those who wait on him. Uh, and I, and I, just to start with, I want to read you a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. Uh, because I think one of the problems, one of the tensions in our culture, in American culture, we, we are really losing our sense of the future. We are a very present-oriented culture. We want it. I want it, and I want it now. And that let's eat, drink today, for tomorrow we die. We have no, we have no sense of the future. We, most people don't plan well for the future. But Christianity, the Christian faith, by its very essence, is a future-oriented faith. Our hope is not in today. Our hope is sure not in what we, what's happened in the past, right? Our hope is in the future that God has promised for us. And the Apostle Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. He says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And he's, in the context, he's talking about the resurrection. If the resurrection didn't really happen, if it wasn't a historical event, then, and if Christ, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then we have no hope for the future. But he, said, but he says, our hope is not for this life only. And there are so many people, our culture is oriented toward just this life only. We live in a, a, a worldview that says that the universe is closed and God does not intervene. And so this, this is all there is. And so, so anyway, so as we talk about this, this idea of waiting on God, I think first and foremost in our minds we need to remember that Christianity is a future-oriented faith. And, and we need to not be ashamed about that because we're uh, in our culture. The culture accuses us of being so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good and that it's just pie in the sky by and by. But the Christian response is that if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of most all people most to be pitied. Our hope has got to be for the future. So waiting on God, like I say, there, there are, uh, I know a lot of people that have been enduring a lot of trials. Well, first of all, I'll tell you that, that this, this uh, hits very close to home for me. Over the past several years, uh, Terry and I, and ever since we got married, it seems like uh, our, our life together has been punctuated by tragedy. Uh, there have been, God has been so faithful to us, and he's given us great times, but there have been some really dark times. And so I'm speaking to you. As a fellow traveler, as a fellow struggler, as somebody, I, I have waited on God. And in, in some ways, we, there's some things we still are waiting on God for. And, uh, and we have hope 
because we know that what is now is not all there is. And I want you to have that hope today. Frederick Beekner captures the problem well. He says, To be commanded to love God at all, let alone in the wilderness, is like being commanded to be well when we are sick, to sing for joy when we're dying of thirst, to run when our legs are broken. But this is the first and the great commandment nonetheless. Even in the wilderness, especially in the wilderness, you shall love him. And so some people feel like they're in the wilderness and they feel like they're waiting on some relief. They're waiting on God. It, uh, Isaiah picks up when we pick up in uh, chapter 40, verse 27. Uh, Israel is sort of in this situation. Israel, because of their disobedience to God, God had allowed these other nations to come in, conquer them, and carry them away. Isaiah, the first half of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, sort of discusses the historical situation that led to Israel being taken away. And then when you get to chapter 40, there's this shift. And the the latter part of the chapters of Isaiah really focus in on, it's almost like Isaiah is fast-forwarding to to when Israel is in captivity. And this is what's going on as they're awaiting to be delivered. And so... We pick up in uh, chapter 40, verse 27. I'm just going to read the whole text, and then we'll, we'll go back and work our way through it. It says, if you're physically able, would you mind standing with me as we honor the reading of God's word? He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk. And not faint. You may be seated. And so the story picks up with Israel's complaint. Israel in captivity in Babylon waiting, uh, waiting for God to fulfill the promises that he had made. God had made promises of restoration. That Israel would be brought back into the land. That he would gather them from the north, the south, the east, the west and bring them together. But Israel has a complaint. And so, so God's question is, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? In, in the Hebrew, these verbs to say and to speak, are uh, they are in a tense that's like a present continuous. So this is not just a one-time statement. This is an ongoing complaint, an ongoing accusation of Israel's heart. <laughs> So we might translate it, why do you keep on saying, why do you keep on speaking? This is their their continual lament. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. The word that's translated right there is the Hebrew word mishpat, which means judgment or justice. I think in in the New American Standard Version, it translates it, the justice do me 
is overlooked by my God or is disregarded by my God. Uh, and, and the word uh, disregarded literally means to pass over. And so, so literally what Israel was saying is God's overlooking me. God has passed over me. And he hasn't brought the justice. God then responds, and we're going to see that his response comes in two parts. Uh, verses 28 and 29, God is going to tell Israel, remember who you're talking to. He's going to point to his perfections, to his character, to his past action. And then in the second part, verses 30 and 31, he's going to say, remember what I've promised you. And so those, are, those will be the divisions that we look at as we go. So remember who you're talking to. He says in, in verse 28, he says, have you not known, have you not heard? Uh, this word known is the Hebrew word yada, and it doesn't just mean have you known intellectually, it's experiential knowledge. It's this intimate knowledge of experience, knowing something personally. All right, so, so it's this intimate knowledge. He says, have you not known have you not heard? And this, the heard is the word Shema, like in uh, Deuteronomy 6, where he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart. So when God says, Have you not known and have you not heard, what he's really suggesting is past revelation. Don't you remember who I am? Don't you remember uh, what I'm like? And he, he goes on to tell him, he says, the Lord, and this is, by the way, this is the covenant name of God that he gave to, to Moses in chapter 3. Whenever you see Lord in all caps in your translation, it's God's covenant name. So he says, the Lord, the covenant God, is the everlasting God. He's the eternal, uncreated creator, the creator of the ends of the earth. God says, do you remember when I made the earth? No, you don't, because you weren't there, but I was, right? And he says, he does not... Faint, and he does not grow weary. The word faint means to, to buckle under pressure. God does not buckle under pressure. He says he doesn't faint, he doesn't grow weary. It's pointing to God's omnipotence. It means that he has all power and he has every kind of power. And there's no, nothing that's too big for him. And then it says his understanding is unsearchable. God's declaring his omniscience. He says, I know exactly where you are. I know exactly your situation and I have the ability to bring you through it. So he says, remember who you're talking to. So he points to it, to his attributes. And I think also in his, uh, when he points to his covenant name, uh, he's also suggesting, remember that I'm the God who revealed myself to Moses. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who delivered you. One of the ways as we're waiting on God, one of the ways that we keep the faith is by reminding ourselves of the God stories in our lives. I've, I've got some great God stories where God, God has worked in our life in a way that it just there's no other explanation except that God intervened. And so we, we remind ourselves with our God stories and we share those God stories with other people. And we need to surround ourselves with people who have experienced the power of God in their lives where they can speak into our lives and share their God stories with us. And we encourage one another's faith. And we, 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 don't, we don't just white-knuckle it. Until we make it to the end, we, we as a community, we encourage one another and build one another up in the faith. And so, so we've got to remember who we're talking to. And then verse 29, this is maybe the most important thing he says to remember about God's character. 
is that he gives power to the faint. Not only does he not grow faint or grow weary, but he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. And so God says the most important thing you need to remember about me is that not only am, do I have all this power and wisdom and perfection, but I leverage my power and wisdom and perfection on behalf of my people. He's a God who saves, and he's a God who rescues, and he's a God who delivers. Remember who you're talking to. Remember this God who has acted. Uh, or our second point is remember what he's promised you. He says, even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. We got our Usain Bolt picture up here. Okay, doesn't he? Okay, he's a fast guy. He, he is a, he is, he's an athlete. He's a specimen, right? The word young men here, it means like choice men, chosen men. It has the idea of young men in peak physical condition. God says it doesn't matter how young you are, how strong you are, how fast you are. If you run long enough or hard enough, you're going to get out of breath. You're going to fall exhausted if you have to keep running. Think about Navy SEALs. As, as tough as they are, if the battle rages long enough and they're outnumbered, all the skill, all their uh, battle strategies, their, their strength, their, their smarts, it's not enough to over, overcome all obstacles. So, we're, so God's pointing that we're, we're finite. Natural ability, natural human power is not adequate for, the, for what we have. And so he says, he says, youths shall faint and be weary, young men shall fall exhausted. Fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Now, this is, this is an important verse, and I, I want to spend some time here just kind of unpacking the language. Because I think this is, this is one of my concerns with preaching a sermon like this is that sometimes that wait for the Lord, when, when people are hurting, and you simply tell them, oh, man, just keep waiting for the Lord, it feels trite. It feels, feels fake. Um, and you want to say back to them, you wait for the Lord. I'm, I'm hurting. I need some relief. But wait, waiting for the Lord. So it means it ha, there, there are two sides to it. On one, one hand, there are, there's a sense of total dependence on God. Waiting is not passive. Uh, the other side of it is faithfulness, that we are, are waiting on God, but we're faithfully engaging in the work that he's given us to do. While we're waiting, I think a great uh, a word a great word study for this is in Psalm 37. If you'll turn there, if you'll turn there with me, Hebrew poetry uses a lot of parallelism, and so if you ever want to flesh out the concept of a word, it's good to look at what other words are used in parallel with it in Hebrew poetry, because it kind of gives you a fuller picture of the kind of character that God is talking about. So in uh, Psalm 37, beginning in verse 1, he says, Fret not yourself because of evil doers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Think in the New American Standard, it says cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself 
it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And so look at these verbs that are in, in parallel. So, so uh, the, the verb wait for the Lord shows up in verse 7 and verse 9. In, in verse uh, 3, you see the word trust. Verse 4, you see the word delight yourself in the Lord. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Be still before the Lord. Refrain from anger. And so the idea of waiting on the Lord is not just passively sitting back and waiting on God to act. It means it's more like resisting the temptation to try to get good things in ungodly ways. Right? Resisting the temptation to achieve some good goals in ways that God... So when he's talking about in, in Israel's situation in this psalm, David is saying that I look around me and I see all these wicked people doing pretty well. I turn on MTV Cribs and I see this guy who, who glorifies drugs and sex and, and violence living in, in a house that's you know big as my block. And that doesn't seem right, does it? So he says when you look around and you see these evildoers prospering, don't fret yourself. But trust in the Lord. And he says, I love in uh, verse uh, uh, 8, he says, refrain from anger. Don't get angry. Forsake wrath. Don't worry about it. Fret not yourself because <laughs> worry leads to evil. You ever think about that when you think about uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he talks about not worrying? I mean, you, you wonder why the biblical authors talk so much about not not worrying, not obsessing about, about the things that are wrong because it leads only to evil. He says, but the evildoers shall be cut off, and those who wait for the Lord shall in inherit the land. So for you to believe that, that someone who is not honoring God, who is, who, is, who is defying God in all of their lifestyle and all of their actions and their prospering material, to believe that the end that God has for them is actually terrifying and the end that God has for you, if you will be faithful, if you'll not take actions into your own hands, if you'll not stoop to their level and try to meet them on the same place that God has a good a good uh a good plan for you that your end will be better than their end that takes faith it takes faith when uh Terry and I were first married we we had a really uh rough first year for a lot of reasons and, and I mean we had a lot of other stuff some of those dark dark times I was talking about and we were figuring out how to live together and I, we would we would get in arguments, and I would be so furious. And I would go I would go to my study, and and just just pray. And I you know I would feel like I was right. Whatever the argument was about, was about, I would feel like I was totally justified and correct. But the Lord uh, took me to James uh, chapter one, and James says that the the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And that verse so convicted me, and it just kind of put when I wanted to retaliate, I wanted to to try to convince her to keep talking it through till she sees my perspective and sees my point of view. God says, even if you're right, it doesn't matter that you're right because you're angry, and the ang your anger cannot get to my righteousness. You can't get there from here. So anyway, so so that's an example of even even in situations where we think that we may be right we can't achieve a, what we think is a good end using ungodly methods waiting so waiting means resisting the temptation to compromise 
next the word renew. So he says those who wait for the Lord, so those who posture themselves in a position of total dependence on God and those who determine to be faithful to God, it says that they will be they they shall renew their strength. Again, this the English falls a little short on the translation. This word renew in Hebrew literally means change. Uh, I think in the old King James, you'll see a footnote that says change under this verse. So it doesn't mean uh, that if you wait on the Lord, if you're faithful to the Lord, you'll get more of the same kind of strength that you already had. It's not that God just gives you more natural human ability. It says that the, the, your strength will be changed. God will give you a new kind of strength. And he, the way that he illustrates that new kind of strength is with a metaphor. He says, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. The strength that God gives is supernatural, and it's as unnatural as a human being sprouting wings and flying away. And I think there's another reason that he uses the eagle metaphor. Uh, so in order to soar to great heights, an eagle doesn't depend on its wing strength. It doesn't, it doesn't flap harder to go higher. It gets some elevation, and it holds its wings out, and the air currents updraft takes the eagle up to great heights. So the eagle postures itself in a way that carries it out. It's not dependent on its own strength. It's depending on a strength greater than itself, but it postures itself to take advantage of that strength. And so we have to posture ourselves to, to, to take advantage of the strength that God offers. But the strength is, again, it's not just God doesn't give us the ability to just flap our wings harder. He comes to us with a different kind of strength. And he says those who wait for the Lord, those who are totally dependent on the Lord, those who are faithful to the Lord and will posture themselves to receive his powers, their strength will be changed. And it says that the result of that will be that they shall run and they will not be weary. They shall walk and they shall not faint. And you'll see the repetition here in verse 31 from verse 28, right? The verse 28 describes God as one who does not faint and one who does not grow weary. And if you wait on the Lord the way that he's describing it, you will run and you'll not be weary. You'll walk and you will not faint. And so there's this idea that as God changes our strength, as he gives us this new kind of strength, we share in his power, but we also share in his character. So the Bible describes the one who trusts on him to be very much like the one he's trusting. And so so when when Scripture says that God's, uh, Romans 8.28, says that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him or are called according to his purpose, the fact that he causes all things to work together for good implies that a lot of the things that are happening are not good, Right? And so we shouldn't expect the Christian life to be easy. We should expect a lot of bad stuff. But God's promise is that he's going to cause all these things to work together good. And, and he says that the good that he intends, in, in Romans 8, Paul defines the good that God intends for you. And that is that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. That you would be shaped to reflect his character. That you would share in his attributes and his perfections. And that's exactly what Isaiah tells us, too. He says that if you'll wait on the Lord, you'll receive his strength. And somehow, as he imparts this strength to us, we don't just make it through, but we actually become like him. And we actually share his character, who he is.
So I do want to just just stop here for a minute. If you are feeling overlooked, if you're in a place where you've been waiting on God, I want to give you a few things that might be there. I, I don't I don't pretend to know what's going on in your life, but I do just want to to, to surface these these questions. Israel was in Babylon. They were they were feeling overlooked by God. They were waiting on his promise. But the reason that they were in Babylon was because they were disobedient to God. They were suffering the just consequences of their sin and they were waiting. And so I do I do want to raise that question. If if we if you're in a season where you feel like God's hand is against you, it is a fair question to search your heart, to ask God to search your heart for any sin in your life. Secondly, and I think this one is is huge, is wrong expectations. We have expectations about life that are shaped by our culture and not by Scripture. So back in verse 28 when God says, have you not known, have you not heard? He says, you shouldn't have this. He's, he's, he's rebuking Israel. He's saying you shouldn't have this continual complaint in your heart if you know who I am. A lot of us are frustrated with God because we don't know what he's like. And the only way that you can know what he's like is to get into the word of God and to encounter him personally. When Paul, in uh, Romans 12, Paul talks about uh, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, it means that our, our minds have been warped and shaped by the culture in which we live. And if we're going to break free from that, if we're going to think rightly about God, we've got to have our minds reshaped. We've got to have the shackles of the world broken off and have our minds reshaped by the word of God. And then we'll have right expectations. Then when, when bad stuff happens, confusing things happens, we'll, have a, we'll at least have a better framework for understanding it. Third, you might be resisting God. Uh, David, no, Craig Barnes, in his book, The Pastor is Minor Prophet, he talks about created limitations, and he uses Adam and Eve as an example. He says, God created Adam and Eve. He put them in the middle of this perfect garden, right? And they had access to all kinds of fruit unhindered access to God, intimate relationship. And he said, there's one thing in this garden that you can't have. And that's exactly where they ended up. And in, in our own lives, the same truth plays out. Uh, we pitch our tent under the one thing that God never intended for us to have. So God may be, there may be some created limitations in your life. You know, if you're, if you're five foot six, uh, you should probably let go of your dream of playing in the NBA, right? You've got a created limitation that you will probably not overcome. And if you and you will, and you we live in a culture that tells us you can be anything you want to do. It doesn't matter as long as you believe in yourself and you work hard, you can do it. But that's not true. It's, it's simply not true. You can't do anything you want to do. God has made you a certain way, and he has a certain purpose for your life. And the biggest question that you should concern yourself with is, how can I fulfill God's purpose for my life the way that he made me? Amen? And then last, the secret counsel of God. And this is where most of the tension is, and this is where most of the hurt is for us a lot of times, is when we just don't know what God's doing. Uh, Deuteronomy 29.29 says that the secret things... Belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, so that we may do all the words of this law. God has, there are some things that God has simply not revealed. And, and we have to learn to trust Him. We have to learn to, we, we, it's, it's not trust if we have to demand that He reveal everything. We can trust Him to keep some things secret 
and to not know why we're going through what we're going through. And that takes that takes a lot of faith. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's true. And 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 so we, we need a community of people who can love us and encourage us and walk with us when we're suffering. We've got to share each other's burdens. By way of application, number one, posture yourself to receive God's power. Get into his word. Engage with God through prayer. Uh, learn learn who God is about his ways, the way that he's worked in history. If he's a God, he's a God who doesn't change. And so learning about how he has worked will help us to understand more of what he's doing now. And also posturing yourself to receive God's power means humbling yourself before God. Come into a place where you can accept that there's some things that he's not revealed, that in my, in my finiteness I simply have to trust his knowledge and his wisdom. So humbling myself before him and spreading my wings and, and asking him to bring his power and lift me up. And to confess just I don't have it. God, I don't have the ability. When we come to the, when, do you know when you come to the end of yourself, that is God's favorite place for you to be. We and we we resist it with everything that we are to keep from being out of resources, to quit, to keep from being uh, desperate. But God loves desperate people. So, surround yourself with people who have experienced God's power. So this goes back to that the sharing our God stories. We share our own God stories with other people, and, and we need to surround ourselves with people who have experienced God's power, who can, who can speak the truth of God from their experience into our lives. And then third, engage yourself in the work of God while you wait. Be faithful to God in the meantime. Whatever pain you're experienced, sometimes our, our pain can, it can seem debilitating. I read an a article recently asking a psychiatrist, if you felt like you were on – someone, a reporter asked the psychiatrist, if you felt like you were on the verge of a nervous breakdown, what would you do? And the reporter expected the psychiatrist to say, go see a psychiatrist or go get some medication. Psychiatrist's answer was, I would go out the door and I would find somebody to help. I would find somebody to serve if I felt – he said, the best thing you can do if you think you're on the verge of a nervous breakdown is to get outside of yourself and to find a way to, to serve. So engage yourself in the work of God while you wait. And uh, if you're in a season where you're feeling overlooked by God, if you're if you're in a season where where you feel like God has passed you by, and maybe you need someone to pray for you, some some people to come around you and encourage you, and to maybe tell you some God stories, maybe just to listen to your story, uh, we would love to do that during this time. Is there anybody here who feels like they would like prayer? Anybody else, anybody we can pray with? You feel like you're going through a difficult time and that you've been waiting on God? Could we, uh, well, Terry's here. All right. I'm just going to open us up in prayer as we move into the ministry time. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for, thank you for every person represented here God I thank you for working in their life and and we heavenly father we we confess that we don't know what you're doing all the time we confess that we are limited and we are so dependent on you and we just pray God that you by your holy spirit God that you would draw near to these who are hurting to these who are waiting God that you that I pray for those who are at the end of themselves, God, that they would spread their wings and that you would come underneath them and lift them up. 
We pray for your power to be demonstrated in their lives, God. We pray uh, for them to know that you're a good father to them and that you love them and that they are precious in your sight and that what's going on in their life today is not the end of the story, that they have a hope for the future because of what you've done through Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name.